Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin', and this episode is brought to you by my sponsor, Certified Piedmontese. I have a great offer for you, so stick around later in the episode. I want to get that to you. But first, let's get to my guest today. In my research, I was kind of looking through some stuff, and I found this quote that she had to describe her business. And it said, we don't count calories, we're unapologetically indulgent. Now, if that is not a quote that deserves to be on this show, I don't know what is. And with that, allow me to welcome the owner of Sweet Magnolia's Bake Shop, Katina Talley. Katina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I guess, let me get some thoughts on that quote that I just mentioned. Is the phrase unapology unapologetically indulgent part of what separates Sweet Magnolias from a lot of the other bakeries in Omaha? I would like to think so. Um, It's kind of just been something that's been personally um, important to me from the get-go. I don't want to cut corners. I just want to put the good stuff into the product. So, and yeah, I'm not going to apologize about it. I I want to make food that people feel really good indulging in. Um, I found another quote of yours that said, we don't just bake desserts, we pour our heart into them. So my first thought reading that was like, this is like that, that wall hanging that every grandma has in their kitchen. (laughs) That's like my, my secret ingredient is love, you know, or something like that. But, but I, I really think it's true in, in bakeries. You can tell when somebody is scratch making everything, when they're really putting thought into every pastry, every, um, every dessert that's created versus just mass producing stuff. What does that statement, we don't bake, we don't just bake desserts. We pour our heart in them. What, what does that mean at Sweet Magnolias? Yeah. I mean, exactly what you said. Like we bake everything from scratch. Um, and we take that very, we don't take a lot of things seriously, but we take that very seriously. Um, it's, I, and I have a personal connection with almost every recipe that that we make, um, I pull inspiration from memories and I'm like a very nostalgic person. So almost everything that I've created is either something that I've been baking since I was a child or are things that remind me of special memories that I've shared with friends or family or just like, you know, like a feeling that kind of resurfaces um, from time to time. And I'm like, what is it in that feeling that I can turn into like a pastry or a a cookie or, or whatever it might be. And so it is, it's like, it's very personal and heartfelt food. Um, that's, um, yeah, it's coming from my personal life. So can you give me an example of that? Just like one item? What, what is that personal connection to that? Yeah. So my favorite example of this, um, are, are cardamom knots, which cardamom knots, like it's, it is a traditional like Swedish pastry, but like, Growing, I grew up in small town Nebraska. We didn't really have a lot of exposure to um, sort of like more like wild pastries. Like, um, but I had a, a neighbor who would make this sweet bread every Christmas and drop it off at our door, and she refused to give us the recipe. And as much as I begged her, she was like, "No, like I'm taking it to my grave." And and it wasn't until I was grown and experimenting on my own in the kitchen that I realized that cardamom was like her secret ingredient. Oh, really? And so the moment I, I landed on that, I was like, oh, I have to, 
I have to put cardamom in our dough at, at the bakery. And it's, yeah, it's like, it's the closest thing to that bread that I've ever experienced. Um, she's still is holding on tight to that recipe. So I don't think I'm ever going to gonna get out of her, but, um, yeah, that's one that every time I eat a cardamom knot, it takes me back to, to Christmas on sixth street, um, in my hometown. Have you taken your version back to her and said, how close am I? No, like the most tragic thing is that she actually has Alzheimer's now and like probably wouldn't even recognize me. Um, but I would, I would be really nice to, to time travel and get her opinion on it. But that, that is awesome that you share that memory though. And it, it is just amazing how food can have that effect on us where you can be 40 years old and you take a bite of something and all of a sudden you're six again. Exactly. And that just makes no sense whatsoever. But everyone listening to this has an example in their mind totally. of something. Um, most people associate pastry shops with sweet desserts and the name sweet magnolias certainly embraces that. But you guys also do savory scones, you do knots, you do biscuits. What interests you about savory baking and why did you choose to include items like that as opposed to just sticking on the sweets route? Yeah. Um, so personally, I am more of a savory person. Um, I will never turn down cheese. Um, and I, so I, I understand that like not everyone comes into a bakery and like wants the sweetest thing available. Um, and I think there is something interesting about savory baking in, um, like the flavors can be a little bit more delicate. Um, you're, you're not, competing with like a pound of sugar you're you have a little bit more room to like play with like herbs and and like compound butters and interesting things that um yeah you just don't get the chance to in in sweet pastries so it's it's fun it's another it's like another little outlet for creativity that um sweet baking doesn't really allow interesting is there are there any like specific savory pastries that you feel like that creativity gets to stand out in that you've created? I'm trying to think of my favorites. I feel like, so right now we have um, our seasonal scone, savory scone is an herbed goat cheese scone. And I don't know if it's like the most creative thing I've ever created, but it is one of my favorites for the balance of flavors, like getting the goat cheese to shine while um, we put, we use thyme and rosemary and just like get striking that balance between like the like the goatiness of the goat cheese and the herbs and the salt and and all of it kind of in unison um it's my favorite right now <laughs> so when you're creating this this combination of herbs and goat cheese like that sounds like you need to have a pretty delicate hand if you let one or two of those herbs or flavors get out of balance the whole thing is going to kind of it's not going to be in balance it's going to be kind of out of whack Mm -hmm. how many times does it take you to test the recipe and kind of refine it before you come to that point where it's like yes this is going in the this is going in the dessert window yeah um no there's like no set rule I think the longer I do this the better I get um I've gotten to the point where I have it almost down to a science, like understanding how much of, of each works well. Um, but every time we create something new, there's usually one or two iterations where it's like, it's not quite there. Um, 
And you know, I used to take the the stance that like I couldn't put it on the shelf until it was perfect. But I've found that the customers almost like being a part of the development process too. And so if there's something that we're working on, we'll say, Hey, like we're working on this thing. Like, do you want to be the test market? Like we're happy to throw oh, one wow, in really? like, give us your feedback. Like we think like maybe it could use a little more, a little more black pepper or something. And like, they love that. And, um, yeah, it makes them feel like they're part of it. So I, I've learned to let go of the perfectionism a little bit. Um, I'm still, I'd say a perfectionist at heart, but, um, yeah, I think like letting people kind of like peek into what it's like to develop recipes is, is fun for them. When did you start doing that? Cause it's, it's a genius idea. Like that not only gives you like crowdsource good feedback, but it also creates a relationship with the customer where right. they're like, these people value my opinion when I'm, when I want some treats next time. That's where I'm going back there. How, how did you figure out that that was a good strategy? Honestly, I can pinpoint it to I, like almost like the day that it happened. And we were working on our espresso bar and trying to like nail the like espresso in the ganache that's in the center layer. And just like making sure that that's shining without like being too better. Um, and this guy came through the door his name was Dawson and I know that because it was his birthday and we were joking that like we weren't sure if this was right but we were going to send one home with him for his birthday and like who knows maybe we'd call it the Dawson bar like because we hadn't didn't have a name for it yet um and like he loved that and like he like I remember posting about it and he came like he came on and like commented on the post and um yeah I was just like why don't we do this more like I have a background in consumer research like it makes so much sense to to share your like work in progress with them and just see how they feel about it well there you go people not (laughs) only when you go into sweet magnolias will you get some awesome treats but you also might get to be a part of the r&d process (laughs) which i think sounds like a lot of fun uh what's your most popular item like what is sweet magnolias known for Sweet Mags is known for scones. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's still... I can attest to why. <laughs> <laughs> they are great. Um, they, like, as a category, they still outsell everything else. Um, but we're also, like, like there's, like, shining items in each category that we have. And so um, scones, far and away, are our first. Um, but then... Lemon bars are huge as well. And then malted milk chocolate Oreo cookies have Ooh. have really skyrocketed. And that's my personal, like, that is, like, my greatest achievement I have in life, I think. <laughs> and so um, it makes me really happy that it's becoming um, the, the thing we're known for. And um, people come in and they're like, I heard about this cookie. And um, so I'm hoping that, you know, maybe this time next year I'll be able to say Malted Oreo cookies are what we're known for. Okay, what makes this the shining achievement of your life? I have to know. Um, you know, like, what is it? Let's start with yeah. that. Yeah. So it is. I started with a standard chocolate chip cookie base, um, but I wanted it to be a little bit like nuttier without containing nuts. Um, and. I'd also, at the same time, had been playing around with the idea of a cookies and cre- cookies and cream cookie. 
So I was like putting cream cheese in the batter and like seeing how it would bake and like trying to nail the the spread and and like making sure that they were like nice and fat and chewy. Um, and so with those two things in my brain, I was like, why don't why don't we just do both? Um, and I like basically blended two recipes together. And it was one of those things where like on the first try of like that combination, it was perfect. And it's just, it's like such a chewy, like rich cookie. I don't think I've ever had a cookie that is the same texture as a malted milk chocolate Oreo cookie. And it's like got the crunch of the Oreos and the like, that like creamy, there's just like creaminess that the, the cream cheese lends. And it's, I don't know, it's next level. I, I say all the time, like that cookie changed my life and it's a bit of an exaggeration, but not a, not a huge exaggeration. Oh my gosh. People, if you're not listening to this and salivating right now, like <laughs> there might be something wrong with you. You might want to get yourself checked up on because that sounds incredible. Yeah. If I created something like that, I think that would be at the top of my resume as well. I, I would hand that into employers and be like, just hire me. I'll bring you cookies. <laughs> you have no resume. It's just the cookies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. You don't need a piece of paper. You just give them a cookie. Say, taste this. Do you want this in your office all the time? Exactly. Um, so I want to point out, you guys also do custom cakes and wedding cakes and desserts as well. And it's... It's ironic because we're uh, we're recording this on October 20th, so Nebraska is about to have their bye week, and, and you were just telling me off the mics that this is like you guys' busiest week of the year, one of the busiest weeks of the year because everybody's getting married <laughs> during Nebraska's <laughs> bye week, which is kind of funny. But uh, what is, what's like the most interesting slash fun wedding dessert story that you can share? Like a specific cake that somebody had you make or just a crazy elaborate order or just like what pops to mind when you think like the best wedding story Sweet Magnolias has helped tell? Oh, wow. The best. I mean, so weddings, I have a love hate with weddings because it's, it's so fun to be a part of people's special day, but it's also like the most pressure. Yeah. And I was just thinking about this the other day, like kind of over the years, like the rituals that I've created to like help me get out of like the stress mode. Um, and over the pandemic and over like the past two years, basically I started listening to Shania Twain, like every time I deliver a wedding, cause it like takes me back to being like a nine year old girl in my bedroom, like listening to these love songs and like thinking like, this is what love is. And so <laughs> like, I'll be like driving these wedding cakes all over Nebraska, like listening to Shania Twain and just like trying to like remember that it's like people's really like special day and I get to be a part of it. And like, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, I think that's like, I just like, I love being a part of their day and whatever it is that they want to make their day like representative of them is, it's just so fun for me to be a part of that. I think probably my favorite, my favorites that I've done have been when there is no cake and it's like, they really love cookies. And so even one of them this weekend is a like, I think like 875 cookie sandwiches. Oh, wow. Um, and then like a three tier cookie cake. Of course. Um, 
And it's just so fun because they're like, well, I personally love lemon and he loves, you know, chocolate everything. So let's like pick out some flavors. And it's like sometimes they come in and they're like, oh, I want this thing off your menu. But a lot of times it's here's kind of the things that I love and like what can we do to create something that's like unique to me. And that's the stuff that I love is like it doesn't have to be something I've made before. It can be something that's totally unique to you. And like, just like, it's like your dream cookie. So those are my favorite weddings. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. And I, I like that. I feel like I'm starting to see that trend more often and that people are kind of going away from just straight wedding cakes. Like I went to a wedding this summer that had like a donut wall yeah. and I had another one where, um, the, the bride's dad had recently passed away, but his favorite dessert was eclairs. So they had eclairs for everyone. So I kind of like that we're seeing that expand. Not that wedding cake isn't awesome. Wedding cake is fantastic. Yes. And anyone who wants a wedding cake, we had a wedding cake. Like, that's great. But that there's more options and that you guys are someone who can offer that stuff, I think, is really cool. So now I want to get into your background a little bit. Um, on Sweet Magnolia's website, it says that you grew up in a food-centric household in rural Nebraska, food centric home sounds like my type of place <laughs> that like something centered around food. That's awesome. Yes. What did you mean by that? And is that kind of where your love for cooking and baking really began? Yes. Um, simply put, it is. Um, what I mean when I say food centric, like when I think of like my family unit, it like my picture that I have is us sitting around the table together and so my grandma was a great cook. My dad is a great cook. And my grandma um, was like a third parent to me growing up. She was at dinner at least two to three times a week, probably. Um, and then it would also be like, it'd be like my parents, my brother and I, my grandma, and then like at least one or two friends that were just like stragglers. Um, but it was just such a experience having dinner in our house because my dad takes his role as my dad is the cook in the in the home and he takes his role very seriously and he's very concerned with if everyone's happy and enjoying themselves and um but then it's also like our time to like kind of kick back and like recap our days and I, I mean that's my favorite part of like food in the house anyway it um, brings people together it does yeah so, but it was, I remember once in, in particular that my, bro, one of my brother's good friends said, he's like, you know, I just like love having dinner with you guys because like you actually talk, like, like you have conversation and like you, like you're here in this meal together. And I've held on to that for years because that was just so how my family was. It was our time to come together and like, we weren't just going to like stare at our plates and you know, how was your day? It was like, we're going to actually like dig in and like have conversations when we're at, when we're at the dinner table. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, my, my dad was the, the cook in the house. He was very protective of the kitchen. He wasn't super big on help. Um, but he didn't know how to bake, still doesn't know how to bake. <laughs> and so that was like something I could own. Um, he didn't really want help. Like, you know, you know, peeling carrots or, or whatever he was up to, but I could certainly make cookies or whatever I wanted for dessert. So, um, that's, it was something that I could just take control of experiment as I wanted to. Um, 
and then, you know, as years went on, I kind of like strayed from that. I was way more into nutrition and I was an athlete in high school and like, it was more about like, how can I eat like the healthiest foods and, and all that. And it took, it took a minute for me to come back to, to viewing food as something that should be like pleasurable. Um, but I mean, it made a lot of sense to me when, when I studied food science in, in college and it made a lot of sense to me that like, as I was studying that the thing, the things that were most interesting to me were like the process of baking and like the browning of bread and, and yeah, just like the chemistry of what's happening when you're, when you're making baking cookies. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you were, uh, you got a degree in Nebraska in food science and technology, yes. which makes me have all kinds of regret and wonder what I did when I got into journalism. Like, no offense to the UNL journalism program. It's great, but I could have been learning about food for four years instead of writing and talking into a microphone like I'm doing right now. I think I've made a mistake. Regardless, that led into a job at ConAgra for four years where you were a food scientist. What is well, like? What is a food scientist? Can you explain that role? Yeah. So you know, there's not a super concise answer because food scientists can do many things. Um, but I mean, essentially, food science is anything to do with the like production, manufacture, safety, etc. of food, the physics of food, um, and. So my, my specific role was in product development um, for ConAgra Foods. And essentially what it entailed was recipe development um, and then developing parameters for the production of that product on a commercial level. And then also like ensuring that that product is safe for whatever shelf life um, we've deemed um, necessary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was it was a really interesting role, and and I I honestly I loved every minute of it because it was like the the meeting of like you know the creative side of your brain and like the analytical side of your brain, and it's it's problem solving, but on like a really fun subject. Hey there, listeners. We'll get back to my guest in a minute, but I got to remind you one more time about certified Piedmontese. I love when restaurant menus list all the different producers and farms where their meats, cheeses, and vegetables arrive from. It gives me confidence that I'm eating a quality product because the restaurant is proud to attach its name to the brand. The same goes for beef, and that's one of the main reasons why I love certified Piedmontese. Certified Piedmontese is farm-to-fork traceable as it purchases its cattle from a trusted network of family ranches in the Midwest. All certified Piedmontese beef is raised without hormones, steroids, or antibiotics, and it's 100% source verified by where food comes from incorporated. And when you buy certified Piedmontese, you know where your food is coming from and why it tastes so good. Place your order today on Piedmontese.com with my promo code HOPPEN, H-O-P-P-E-N, and feast on delicious, safe cuts of beef with confidence. And now, back to my guest. Not not jumping too far ahead, because I want to get into how you came to open the bakery and everything, but a- as you look at Sweet Magnolias now, what lessons did you learn from that job as a food scientist that you find yourself applying in the bake shop now? Yeah, so I feel like 
first and foremost, um, just like development of a successful, like scalable product. Um, I'm working on much smaller scale than I was at ConAgra, but taking something from like, you know, home quantity to producing for a retail bakery. Um, I pull a lot of knowledge from my, you know, benchtop days scaling like Marie Calendar meals. Um, and then I think like the, maybe the most valuable thing that I learned at ConAgra was just how to like develop for profit or like what it means to have like margins um, or like how to appropriately price products so that you're considering all of your variables that are going into the, the production of that product. Um, yeah. Like the, the times that I was sitting at a computer, like plugging in numbers into spreadsheets to figure out how many like literal cents I could spend on a frozen meal um, to make profit helped me a lot when I was, when, when the profit was actually very personally important to me. Um, so yeah, I feel like those are like the two biggest things that I still think back to. Well, that's so interesting because I think a lot of people, when they think about, you know, opening a, a business or, a, you know, a, whether it's a bakery, restaurant, whatever, they're, they're thinking about the food first and foremost, but they're not thinking about, yeah, what do I have to charge for this? So people will buy it at that price point, but I'm still making money off of it. So you got to cost out how, how much labor and time am I dedicating to this specific thing? What ingredients are going into it? How much of each, each ingredient? Like totally. these are things that you don't think about. So that sounds extremely valuable that you were able to get that, especially in a professional setting at a company like ConAgra. Like that's a respected brand. Right. Yeah. They, they definitely, that role taught me like the strategy of creating a product and like creating a product that's repeatable. And um, like, I mean, now, like, to your point, like, the food is the most important. Like, first and foremost, like, I am, like, making a product that I am proud of and is delicious. And I'm not, like, cost-reducing, like, I'm not subbing oil for butter because it's cheaper. Like, I'm going to make the best thing I possibly can. But then with the with the realization that, like, I have to make money on this and I have to, like, stay within parameters of, like, what somebody wants to pay. And, um yeah. And like the biggest thing is like just being consistent and like making the same product over and over again. So, so what, what brought the idea of opening your own bake shop to your mind? You opened yes. Sweet Magnolias in 2016. When, when did the idea first come into your head? You know, owning a bakery was a pipe dream, um, that I had. It was like that like fun idea in the back of my brain whenever I'd have a slow day or a t even at like a tough day at work. And it was like, you know, maybe someday I won't do this. Like I'll, I'll own my own thing instead. And I thought it would be much later in life, which is laughable now, like knowing how hard it is. Um, but ultimately, so I started ConAgra in the bake lab actually. And then I moved on to, dessert toppings and like ice cream sauces and coffee syrups, which is still very much in my wheelhouse. Then I moved on to like innovation, which was like whatever's new, which is obviously exciting. 
And then I had a couple of stops before this, but they ultimately put me on tomatoes. Um, and you know, it's great. It really pushed me as a scientist and I learned more about tomatoes than I ever thought I would ever know. But I got to the point where I was like, I cannot put one more tomato in one more can, um, and feel like I'm like really like living up to my purpose. So I started to think about what I was, what I was looking for and what was going to be fulfilling and was like literally two weeks away from moving to Chicago. Um, I was like looking for apartments about to sign on with craft actually. And an, an old coworker sent me a, a message and she's like, Hey, I know you kind of got your own thing going on right now, but I, this space is available and like you kind of mentioned that maybe a bakery is something that you were interested in. So I just thought I'd like let you know. And I don't know. It was like that, like, it was just like out of nowhere, like, this is like what I want to do. And so I went toward the space, like it was awful. It was ugly. It was like, <laughs> it was dirty. Um, but I was like, you know what? I really like, I think I can do something cool with this. So I was so fortunate to have a family loan and was able to just buy it outright. And it was like such a whirlwind of like knowing I want to do something else, thinking I was moving to a new city and then being like, just kidding, I'm starting a business. And then, you know, I had like essentially three weeks to figure out how to, to create a menu, figure out like what I was doing. Um, if I was, if how to be prof, prof, profitable, um, and to clean and like paint everything because it, it needed it. But yeah, it was, it was from a point of, um, I guess frustration. And then just a, I got very, very lucky. Um, but yeah. So where do you even start? Like you, but you buy the space <laughs> and you say you've got three weeks to do all this stuff that like that just sounds so overwhelming that it would just paralyze me and I would do nothing. <laughs> so been there. Yeah. where where do you start when you have that just basically blank canvas? Yeah, I mean like there's like the the basic things of just like, you know, getting your LLC in line and like yeah, like the more like managerial tasks, but for me, I I was like first thing I'm going to do is get in and clean and paint and like basically turn it into a blank slate. Um, I knew that I did not have a budget for, to make it like something that I was really proud of. Um, but I wanted to make it something that I at least wasn't embarrassed by. <laughs> and then from there, I was just like, you've been baking your whole life. Like just put together like a, a list of the things that you know that you want to offer. Um, and then, yeah, just like learning I was the brand new owner of some like very old ovens and I was like, how do I, like I have to practice baking these things that I've been baking my whole life in new equipment. Um, and yeah, it was just, yeah, created an an Instagram page, um, and started out with like probably 15 followers. They're like my closest friends. And I was like, just, I don't know, like share it. Um, so yeah, it was just, I feel like I had like a a layout of of what I knew needed done, but to your point, it was very scattered. And I feel like that's kind of been the pace since day one is like 
just like figuring out and and one day at a time taking it as it comes um yeah well that you mentioned one thing that I want to touch on real quick that fascinated me and something I never thought about before I talked to bakers on this show is that not only does every oven itself cook differently based on how old it is, based on what model it is, based mm-hmm. on whether it's functioning correctly, all that, but like things bake differently based on the weather, based on yes. the humidity, <laughs> based on the seasons. Like there's so many adjustments that have to be made. I'm assuming that that's just something you mentioned. Baking is something you've done your whole life. That's just, you almost need that kind of lifetime of knowledge to be able to make those adjustments on the fly, right? To be able to look at the weather and say, oh, it's going to rain today. I need to do X, X, and X to my recipes, my baking times to make sure everything comes out right. Yes, absolutely. And like, oh, and it's it's just, I mean, even like, yeah, I've I've baked my whole life, but learning how long it's going to take to like proof cinnamon rolls every morning based on the weather outside. Um, and like, yeah, like, I mean, we unfortunately are very small and don't have like the best, like high end equipment. We have a proof box, but it's still like so variable based on the weather and things like I've gotten to the point where I, sometimes I just don't even want to make macarons during the summer because like, there's no way it's going to, they're going to turn out or like they might, but it won't be our best product. Um, yeah. And like, even like glazes, like how much like milk or cream you're adding to a glaze because like based on like the humidity in the air and like, how is that going to look on a donut after it's been sitting in the case for two hours? Um, yeah, it's wild. The things that you learn over time. So take me to the night before you open for the first time and you're trying to sleep or maybe you're in the space for the last time before you close the doors and you're like next time I open these like it's go time what are your emotions and feelings like you know I feel like I blacked out so much of that (laughs) first year like I was so anxious I like I, I remember the like definite feeling of like what have I done like I was it was mostly just like lack of sleep um because I, I I think back now and it kind of like I have to laugh about it, but like I was like sleeping in grocery store parking lots, like oh wow, just for like twenty minutes of sleep because I was like that's the other thing is like understanding like your supply chain. Like I was like I bought groceries so I could produce product so I could open, but then like we sold way more than I could have ever dreamed. And then I would have to be like, okay, well I have to go to the grocery store or we like can't be open tomorrow. So I would like bake all day and then I would go to the grocery store so we could be ready for the morning. And I'd be like, I just need to like sleep for like 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, so like that night before, like I just remember being so anxious and like knowing that like the people that were going to show up the next day were the people that I cared the most about what they thought. Like they were like my biggest supporters and my friends and my family, which like, obviously like they're also going to be the most forgiving, but they were also the people like some, like my dad who was like, you just threw away like a really promising career to like take this chance on a bakery. Like, do you want to do this? And, um, and then like even like old mentors who were there just like, you know, like, be supportive and like I was just like oh I really like want them to like come in here and be like this was a good decision or like she knows what she's doing 
Um, I didn't, I had no idea. Um, (laughs) but yeah, just like absolute, I guess probably like controlled panic is, is the best description of the emotion that day or that night. So you were clearly very invested in kind of proving yourself to these people and proving that this was a good idea, that you weren't crazy, that this, this thing had legs. You, like you said, you weren't throwing away your career. What was their response that first day? Did they, did they see it? Were they like, okay, we get it now? Or was it a little more tepid? Yeah, I feel like almost everyone was, was in the ballpark of, we get it. Like, this is, this is good food. Like this thing, like, I think that this has a shot. And then there's the people like my parents who were a little closer in. They were just like, like, I hope to God this works because they, yeah, I think that they, they had a little bit of a closer seat to, to like the sleep deprivation and, uh, just like I was a lot less present. And so I feel like they were like, oh, I really hope this works because she's pouring everything into it. Um, yeah, I feel like, I mean, now they, they all get it. And I, I'm so, I don't know if you're familiar with like Enneagram, um, anything. Slightly, yes. Yeah. But I, I always go back to this because I'm an achiever, like, or I don't, maybe gallop strengths, but like Mm -hmm. in every personality test I ever take, it's like achievement is like my goal. So it was very important to me that like my parents saw that and was like, this is a good idea. This is like, you're doing a good job. Like this is, this is the right path for you. And so now like they are very, like they are very proud. They like, they love sweet mags too. So I guess like for my, like for that part of my personality, it's, it's uh, very validating. At what point did you see that crossover from them being still, I'm sure they were very supportive, not like they were ever doubting you, but like where they cross that barrier from, I hope this works to this works. Um, I honestly, I think it was when I celebrated one year. Um, and I'm like a big birthdays person, which makes a ton of sense owning a bakery, but I threw the bakery birthday party and they showed up to, to help. And I remember my mom, like cutting brownies in the back and like, it was like such a buzz. And it was like all these people that were just like there because they love sweet mags. And I feel like that was the first time that, they really got that like glimpse into just how fulfilling it can be to like to be a happy part of people's day and like yeah just like how like the community that i gained because of sweet mags is really like special mhm um on your website it says that sweet mags strives to strike the balance between imaginative and timeless at what point did you establish that that was going to be your identity? I think that it goes back to that nostalgia piece. And it's, it's that how do I create something that pulls those like memory strings, but is also something that you maybe haven't seen before. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's like, you want to be familiar, but not boring. Mm -hmm. And I think that's almost everything that we do. It's like, it's just kind of taking that next step to be like, I mean, for instance, like we make, you know, molasses cookies and like molasses and ginger is like 
timeless, but we throw in some cardamom and a little black pepper and it's just like takes it to the next level. And it's like, it, it's still very much that thing that, you know, but it's just a little bit with a twist. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit different. So did you know when you were opening sweet magnolias that that was going to be kind of your lane or over time, did you realize, Hey, I've got these classic recipes. I want to put my own spin on them, my own stamp on them. I feel like I didn't know right away. Um, but it was a very natural direction for me to go just cause I think that's like, it's just like who I am. Like, it's just like, Oh, I really like, I like this like kind of basic thing, but like, how can I make it not so basic? And it's, it's funny. So I'm engaged and getting married. And Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but we're like planning our, we're doing cake. Um, but we're, we're, we're doing a cake bar. And so we're like planning all of our flavors and I, and every single thing I'm like, okay, we can do this, which is, should be a crowd pleaser, but like, we're going to do this really like weird thing too, that like maybe someone's going to be afraid to take a slice, but once they do, they're going to be really happy they did. Uh-huh. And that's like constantly what I'm looking for is like, so- someone might need a little convincing that they should, you know, buy the malted Oreo cookie. But once they do, they're like, that was a great choice. I am extremely jealous of every guest <laughs> at that wedding because I cannot imagine how good the desserts for your celebration are going to be. So congratulations. <laughs> Very you. excited for you for that. Um, I think one of the most iconic things beyond the food at Sweet Magnolias is that light purple door. <laughs> yeah. You see that and that's kind of like the symbol. Like if I just, if I see a picture of that without any other context, the first thing I think of is Sweet Magnolias. Mm-hmm what's with the purple door? Like, how did you come up with that? Because obviously it's genius. Like now that's etched in my brain. How'd you come up with it? It's funny. Um, So when I first toured that space, like one of the first things that caught my attention was there's like some iridescent glass in the door. And the building has some really interesting history. Um, It's been, it was like originally a distribution center for the Omaha World Herald. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, it's, yeah, like early 1900s. And then it, it's been an art studio. It's been a tailor shop. It's been a law office. Um, so I have to imagine that the, the iridescent windows came into place at some time during the art studio phase. Um, but I, I saw those and I was like, I really want to play off that. Like I, I want to like bring out some of this like unique character from, from this building and I literally based our entire color scheme off of like one window in that door. And it's, it's so funny cause we're in the process of designing a second bakery space right now. And my team has been so focused on like, how do we like get that same like purple door feeling? And I'm like, you know what? I don't think we're ever going to recreate the purple door. We have to just kind of let that, let that lie. But like the purple is always going to be part of what sweet mags is like, We've built all of our merch and like our vibe off of the purple door. So now feel perfectly like if you don't have the answers or if you don't feel like you're ready to disclose <laughs> the information, feel free to just shoot this question down. But second location, yes. can can we talk about we can. where that is, when that is? We can. Um, well, we can talk theoretically about when that is. Okay, um, theoretically. But yeah, so we'll be going into the Ashen Building. Um, Millwork Commons. Oh, okay. Down yeah. on like 14th and... Man, that area is really growing. It is. an archetype open archetype there too. just opened, yeah. So we'll be 
essentially connected to archetype. Um, we'll have a door that empties out into that that main corridor there. And um, yeah, we're aiming for now, we're now aiming for March. Um, it's been delayed a little bit, just pandemic stuff and running a business while building a second one is, you know, mm-hmm. it's time consuming, but yeah. So if we can get equipment here, we're, we're hoping for a March opening date. Well, congratulations on that. You just got all kinds of big stuff going on in your life. <laughs> right. Second location, yeah, no, wedding. Yeah. Just another day, <laughs> day in the life. Um, you talked about how, you know, you had such nerves at the beginning of opening the bake shop and you were just catching 20 minute naps in the parking <laughs> lot too. When you had that one year birthday party, that's like, that's when things started to feel established. That's when your, your parents really settled in and were like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest thing you feel like you learned in that first year that helped you move from that starting point to the one year mark? Oh, wow. Let's think the biggest thing. I think probably the importance of of help it like the naive person that I was when I opened the bakery was like I don't know like do I need an employee like maybe I'll just start by myself and like see how it goes and like thankfully I decided like kind of at the last minute that I would hire one person and then not like two days into it I was like okay like I have to hire someone else um and then you know like by the end of End of year one, I had seven employees, um, but it was really just the the three of us for the first probably six months. And once I realized that the more hands on deck, the easier the work was, and like uh, the like the more fun the work was, we kind of just skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like just like having people that like you can trust and who buy into your vision. Um, it's a, just a game changer. Now it sounds obvious to say, well, yeah, hire more employees. That's going to make everything easier. But you mentioned like a huge part of this company is that every dessert, every pastry that you create has some kind of tie to something Mm -hmm. that happened in your life. There are emotions and feelings that have gone into these desserts. And these are emotions and feelings and history and memories that other people don't necessarily have. And now you're trying to teach them to bake Mm -hmm. that way. And that's a really hard thing to do. How how did you get over that mental hurdle? Or how did you learn to teach yourself to teach people to do that? Just how did you get there? Yeah. So I think initially, like, First and foremost, I like having a really like close knit team has been huge. Um, I, I it's it's always like I know there's like all these like stereotypes around like you know we're a family or whatever. Like I don't really view it that way, but like we are, we're really good friends. Like we all get along so well and like kind of have to just because we're. We have 800 square feet and we're like standing on top of each other. You guys are on top of each other, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's really important that we all get along. Um, But so not only like finding people that you vibe with, but also like finding ways to communicate how important it is um, or like what it is about those products or like that food that like 
like your emotional connection, why it matters to you and why like something needs to be done a certain way. And that was like something I learned also in the first years, like how to, I, I didn't set out to be a manager. Um, I'm, I'm still working on it, but just like communicating the why behind the things that I do or what I expect is the best way to get people on board. Um, like if I have a specific way that I like to like, like cream this butter and like, like, I don't know, like can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but like just explaining my why, um, makes it so much easier for them to be like, Oh, okay. Like I see why this, why this matters. Um, I found a quote, or there was actually a news story that was done on you, um, I believe it was just earlier this year, but it was kind of talking about the empowerment of women in the restaurant industry, and it sounds like this is something that's really important to you, Um, and uh, the quote was, a lot of times society tries to pit us against each other and make us think that other women are competition, and then you went on to say, the more we support each other, the more we grow, and the more we thrive. Can you unpack that quote for me a little bit further and just kind of talk about why you're so passionate about that? Yeah, I mean, I think my entire life, like I can, like even outside of the restaurant world, I feel like I was set up to think that other women were my competition, like whether it's like in sports or in school or at work. Um, And I especially through owning a small business, I've found the absolute opposite to be true. Like some of my, like my best mentors and peers and like my support system is largely made up of women um, and like women, small business owners. And I've created a lot of really great things with other women simply because I've stopped viewing it as like, if you're succeeding, then I'm failing or like your success takes away from my success. Um, and yeah, like, I feel like we would do a lot better to like instill that in young girls. Like just because someone else is succeeding doesn't mean that you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great note to, to end the podcast on a nice positive thought. I would just love to encourage anyone right now to check out sweet magnolias like there's a good chance that you've heard of it um but if you haven't if you haven't stopped in please do like you can go online and you can check out the menu online you can actually order ahead online and then go into the shop and pick stuff up i would encourage just going in there and just seeing what's in the counter and just making some decisions on the fly that's usually what i do i'll even go and just ask the person who's working at the front desk and be like tell me what's your favorite? Like what, what's selling? What's like, what are you excited to bake? And those are usually things that aren't going to go wrong. And of course there's that. Okay. Salted milk, chocolate, malted milk, chocolate, malted, not salted, (laughs) malted milk, chocolate, Oreo cookie. Yes. There's that. You have to get one of those because it's uh, the cookie that changed Katina's life. (laughs) If it's a life changing cookie, who are you to say no to that? Katina, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much. And as always, Omaha, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.